Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Old Testament, Josh Benee. Josh is an alumnus of Geneva College of Westminster Seminary, California, and is currently at work on his Ph.D. dissertation, Utopia in the Hebrew Bible, at the University of California, San Diego. You can read a little bit of uh, Josh's pastoral writing at wscal.edu slash faculty. Hi, Josh, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. Good to be here. So you um, were not raised in Southern California. You've lived here, but you were not raised here. Where where were you raised? I uh, came here to get away from winter. And where was that? I was uh, born in uh, Iowa and uh, went through elementary and junior high in Anchorage, Alaska, and went through high school in Bozeman, Montana. Anchorage, Alaska. Tell, tell for, those of, for those who have not been to Anchorage, tell us a cold weather story. A cold weather story. How cold does it get in Anchorage, and, and how did that affect you? Well, Anchorage is uh, it's, um, long. It's not exceptionally cold, but uh, we would get the first snow in October, and uh, it wouldn't leave until May. What constitutes exceptionally cold? Well, uh, exceptionally cold was uh, um, actually Bozeman, Montana, more often was exceptionally cold. They wouldn't cancel school unless it was 30 degrees below zero. Oh, interesting. Because uh, they figured everybody could drive in the snow, and in the cold weather, it was when the pipes started to freeze that okay. uh, you had to worry. So at, in Anchorage, you then you were in a uh, you were in the banana belt then. Well, somewhat. <laughs> it it, uh, it thankfully got warmer in uh, Montana. It would vary, but yeah, uh, yeah Anchorage being uh, near the ocean was actually uh, a uh, a more temperate in that it would rarely get below zero. It would instead stay around single digits or teens most of the winter. You didn't just grow up in. Uh, in the cold, you, you grew up in a pastor's house, so you... Yes, yes. W- what was it like being raised, and that's why you were in Anchorage and then, and then in Bozeman. What's it like being raised in a pastor's house? Um, it, uh, I, I don't know, it's all I knew, and so I don't have anything to compare it to. I, uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, you, you got to know um, and see... Uh, the different members of the congregation sometimes in a different light as, as uh, um, uh, you know, you would uh, uh, visit them you know, with my dad or, uh, or other activities. Um, but uh, it's, I don't know. It was fine. Okay. Well, some, sometimes uh, people, uh, when they grow up in a, in a pastor's house, either they're drawn towards ministry or pushed away from ministry. So evidently, growing up in a pastor's house didn't push you away from ministry. Right. I um, I wasn't planning on being a minister when I entered uh, college. And if you would have asked me any time growing up, I wouldn't have said I wanted to be a minister. Um, so it didn't draw me to, inter- to ministry early on, but uh, um, it certainly didn't uh, push me away in the end. I want to go back to for a minute uh, to living in Alaska and uh, living in Montana. Now that you've and you've uh, lived in Southern California twice, this is your second time living here, and so you've had a chance to live in other places. 
Um, how do you compare living in, in the great north in Alaska and then in the, I don't know, in the mountain west with living in Southern California? What, what differences besides the, the, the most obvious? I, one thing is that you always have to be prepared when you uh, lived, you know, when we were in uh, either Montana or Alaska in the wintertime. And so you had to um, think about that when you would go out and travel and, uh, and do activities. You always wanted to make sure you had the essentials with you if anything went wrong. Sure. Um, you don't have to think about that in Southern California. <laughs> you just have to think uh, flip-flops or no flip-flops. Right. That, that's Do your I big... need a sweater or not? Now, what kinds of recreation, in, in what kinds of recreation did you engage in Montana? Uh, my dad was always uh, um, very active uh, in hunting and fishing. And so I grew up in that. Uh, and, uh, and usually camping would go along with that. And so outdoors was a big part of uh, growing up in Alaska and Montana. And that's definitely the part of it that I miss the most. Um, we do have good recreational uh, activities, but uh, the hunting in Southern California is um, rather minimal. Sure. Uh, and your, your dad, if, uh, he, your dad, for those who don't know, worked in the, uh, the admissions office here for uh, several years, and, and one of the highlights of going into his office is uh, a large, if I remember correctly, white bear skin. Oh, brown a, bear. Brown bear, okay, so a large brown... Bear. A brown Polar bears are still illegal. Okay, well, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> if the federal officials are listening, it was brown. It was a brown. Uh, so, uh, so one of the highlights of going into your dad's office was uh, is a large brown uh, bear skin. Do you know the story behind that? or I know all the stories, and I can tell <laughs> you. They, they sometimes change through the years. But, uh, um, yeah, no, uh, I remember um, he, uh, he had a good friend in the congregation in Alaska who had uh, a plane. And you would go out when the brown bears were just coming out of hibernation. So then you could look on the white expanse of snow and you'd see the brown dot mm -hmm. of, uh, of their den. And so they went and they, they spotted him and, uh, and then landed as close as they could um, on skis on a lake and then walked with their snowshoes. And, uh, and then as they approached the den, you had to let the brown bear, after it, it uh, came out of the den, you had to let it run far enough away from the den that it wasn't trying to go back to protect cubs, uh, to make sure it didn't have cubs. And, uh, and so the, the brown bear came out of the hole. They, uh, they watched it start running up a slope. They figured uh, they were safe, and then they started shooting. And uh, I don't think they hit him until the ninth or tenth bullet. And, uh, um, and by that time, he was quite a ways up this, this uh, hillside that it took him about... Uh, four or five minutes to run up, and later when my dad went up to get him on snowshoes, I think it took him two hours. Oh my! And so, so yeah, that's an adventure. I so mean, just was, but but his brown bear really was quite small compared to some. His friend who had the airplane, he shot a brown bear that uh, just the skin of his brown bear weighed the same amount as my dad's whole bear. Oh my! So well, yeah. I but guess I guess when you're in Alaska, adventure is a relative thing. That's right. Uh, just you know, for some of us, uh, just seeing a bear uh, constitutes all the adventure we need. 
let alone uh, hunting one and then bringing back the, the skin. Well, it, it's one of the, it, when the girls were little, it was one of their favorite things to go into uh, your dad's office and, and pet the bear. So, Well, uh, so you, you, you have an interesting uh, background. And, and, of course, you, you were raised in a, not only a pastor's house but a, a believing home, uh, raised in the faith. Uh, you were catechized. You were uh, taught the scriptures. So talk about that. What's it like to grow up? Because not, not everyone listening uh, has had the benefit of growing up in a Christian home. Yeah, no, I look back on it, and I very much uh, treasure that, that heritage that uh, my parents were faithful in, uh, in teaching me uh, the scriptures, the Old New Testament. And uh, um, I think I was 10 or 11 when I made profession of faith. And, uh, um, and there's just, uh, you know, there was no time when I did not know of God, did not believe that Jesus uh, um, was my Savior who had died on the cross. Uh, it, was, it was more a process of um, becoming more and more aware of the subtleties of the faith. Um, and uh, it wasn't until college that I really understood how different I was to have been raised Reformed, uh, learn about premillennialism and, uh, and some uh, many of those I had probably been introduced a little bit, but uh, never had seriously engaged them before. Um, so, so you, yeah, it's a, it's a blessed heritage. You went to Geneva College, and there you came into contact with people from different, Christian people from different backgrounds. Uh, and and uh, you came uh, from Montana yes. to, uh, to, to uh, Geneva College. So what was that like? How, how did that go? Um, I was uh, coming in as a mechanical engineer. And, uh, Always good background for pastoral it, ministry. It is. It's uh, it's great preparation for the languages, at least. Okay. Uh, good scientific background. But uh, um, yeah, coming there, there was no uh, Christian Reformed Church nearby because that was uh, the denomination my dad was a pastor in, and so I had to find a church to go to nearby. And I think part of that was the process of discovering the various Christian traditions in. Uh, in America, and uh, and seeing the distinctions and uh, and very much um, the truth behind what I had been raised in, and uh, and so I ended up uh, while out there worshiping at a um, Reformed Presbyterian church, um, and uh, but my roommate uh, was uh, I think he was a Methodist of some degree, and uh, yeah, and the various friends. Um, were from more broadly evangelical, and so as we talked about baptism and the other issues, it was it was good to um, dig more into uh, the background, the biblical background uh, for um, you know for for our beliefs. It's interesting that uh, you say that you know as you confronted the different possibilities, uh, as you sort of came out of the cocoon of the home and, and went into the broader world, that it actually in a sense pushed you back towards your your reformed roots rather than away because that doesn't always happen. Correct. Correct. It, what was it in particular, do you think that, that uh, as you're having these conversations, you know, late at night in the dorm, uh, you know, with a friend or, or a roommate or something that made you uh, think, you know, I think what I was taught, you know, is, uh, is a better explanation than what I'm hearing. 
Hmm. Ah, uh, trying to think back on that time. Uh, I would say I was probably impressed by both the historic tradition behind the Reformed faith um, and, and the way it integrated the Bible as a unity together. The, uh, um, the way it's, yeah, you know, you can, you can make sense. It has a grid uh, for an understanding of how the Old Testament and New Testament uh, fit together. And, uh, and so those were maybe two of the main um, things that were impressed upon me. So when At you were time. when you were challenged, uh, it it seemed to you then that uh, the reformed understanding of scripture held up, yeah, under scrutiny. Well, yeah, yeah, because well, that was you know definitely interacting um, people from a broader evangelical background often didn't have a much of an understanding of the Old Testament, and that had always been you know an important part of uh, of the biblical knowledge that uh, growing up and uh, and what we would use, and so. Well, here you are teaching at a theological seminary, and you, but as an undergraduate, you were training to become an engineer. So how did you go from taking an engineering course to uh, ending uh, to uh, teaching in a in a seminary? Uh, part of it, and this is the humorous part, was that as I thought about it, I didn't think I wanted to uh, sit behind a desk all day. <laughs> Which is exactly yeah. what I do now, and that's why that's you laugh. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, if you can figure out a way to do this job without sitting behind a desk, let me know. Exactly. Um, but uh, uh, no, I, I did enjoy engineering, and, uh, um, but it didn't, I be, as I became more interested in theology, um, I also um, you know, grew in my desire to, uh, um, to in some way, be active in uh, in the church in using that theological knowledge and at that time uh, I was really thinking of uh, missions work to some degree or another and so first I toyed around with the idea of going as an engineer and doing more of a uh, you know a humanitarian type mission um, but uh, as I thought about that it was I, I felt more the desire to actually um, teach or preach the the gospel, and uh, and so halfway through my junior year, after just completing water and wastewater management, um, I decided to change my major to uh, pre-seminary. Okay. The uh, the only major you can get all the required uh, classes for in a semester or a, a year and a half. Oh. <laughs> so you. Uh you, you took the. You're not suggesting, though, that uh, we laugh. But you're not suggesting you took the pre-sem course because it was easy. But no. really, you had a, 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 no, se- a no, sense that, of vocation. Yes, and um, it was. Yeah, it was a way to to still um, graduate in four years, and uh, and be uh, prepared to go to seminary. Because I thought about completing my degree um, to to have as a backup or anything like that. But sure. I I thought it would be better use to. Uh, there's, actually get ready. There's got to be a joke in there somewhere about meetings and wastewater and something, but I, I just can't I can't put it together right here on the spot. But so I, I'm, I imagine that training will come in handy someday. Well, um, so you found yourself uh, in college thinking about seminary then. Uh, and when you were in college, you had a number of op- options, choices that you could make as to where you would go to seminary. How did you sort through that? 
this might be a rather revealing question. Um, Pennsylvania we found one. Yes, <laughs> Pennsylvania was cold, and uh, California was warm. No, I was looking for a good uh, a good reformed seminary, and uh, and I had heard of uh, the reputation of Westminster, um, and so I felt comfortable coming there. But uh, I must admit there was also the draw of uh, coming to a new adventure in California, someplace I hadn't uh, lived before. Sure. Well, you'd seen you'd seen um, cold, so you thought maybe you'd try exactly. try the sun. At what when you got here, and uh, now you're on track toward fulfilling a, a new vocation in life. How, how did it go? What what was your experience here? What what do you think? Um, affected you the most about your time here? Well, when you start out with Greek one in the summer, it, uh, um, you, you get a sense of the camaraderie uh, between not only the students, but even the students and the faculty. Um, and, uh, and you also see the passion for the, for the Word of God, um, even as you're learning your paradigms and such. And uh, and that just grew as I went through, as, as that unity that I had seen in the Reformed faith, as it was filled out through the various classes, systematics, history, all of the Bib Studies classes. Um, and so I really grew to appreciate um, the framework of, of the unified curriculum that I went through, as it, uh, as it really did make me... Um, uh, one who was capable of uh, of looking at the primary text and uh, in interacting um, in the history of interpretation um, as as you looked at that, knowing the theological issues that uh, the text uh, is dealing with also um, and so yeah it it uh, um, I found the classes not only challenging and rigorous but uh, also very edifying. As as they built me up, I you know Van Tilian apologetics, um, it uh, it did a um, you know it was very uh, beneficial for my faith, um, I would say. And uh, um, do you think it would be fair to say that in a sense, uh, studying here, even though you did a pre-sem course at Geneva, uh, that uh, studying here put more biblical bones on the skeleton, uh, in a sense, w- with which you had been raised. Yes. Sort of yeah. fleshed out the things that you had. Very much so. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's always good sitting in systematics classes and finding out uh, these uh, issues and controversies that we've thought long and hard about in our Christian tradition that uh, you don't even know exist, but you do see their importance as they're brought out and you, and you integrate them into your system. So, yeah, very much. It was building on the foundation that I had before. At some point, you decided you're going to go on and do some additional study. How did that work? What uh, what was that process like? Even back at uh, Geneva College, I had uh, some uh, professors or friends who encouraged me to maybe think about that in the future. So that had been in the back of my my mind, and uh, and coming to Westminster, um, I had always uh, thought of doing something other than a traditional pastorate, um, either uh, missionary work um, by planting uh, congregations overseas or, or more probable, 
by either doing Bible translation or possibly uh, teaching. And, uh, and as I um, reflected on the skills that God has given me um, in my time here at Westminster, um, it became clear that, uh, that probably trying to pursue some sort of uh, theological teaching would be a, a good way um, that, uh, that those skills could be used. Uh, and, uh, and to do that, um, it would be best to get further education. I want to come back in a minute and talk a little bit more about the research that you're doing now. Uh, but let's talk about your life now as a teacher. You, you've studied here, and um, you began grad work, and, and uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. But now here you are teaching at the very place where, where you studied. How has that been? What, what's it like um, teaching? And, and uh, how it, uh, describe your life as a teacher. And, and the, I, particularly, I'm interested in the way that it has changed you. Definitely. Uh, I had an interesting transition in that I graduated in 2002, and I taught my first class here that summer of 2002. What was that class? Uh, Greek one, the okay. summer Greek class. Um, I got the uh, unique opportunity for four years to teach uh, summer Greek. Um, and, uh, and I remember standing up in front the, uh, the first day and, uh, and just, you know, somewhat the weight of the <laughs> fact that yeah. I am the one to, uh, you know, that everyone is looking at. Uh, for this instruction, and uh, and how much it pushed me um, to make sure that I was very much prepared for every class, and uh, um, but uh, you know there was also a uh, a very humbling thing in it too, in that uh, you you knew your limits, and uh, and as you taught a class again and again, you got to see yourself grow. Mm. Uh, as uh, as you hear the same questions over again, you get much better at answering them. And, uh, and other activities. But uh, it was a different step to actually become a professor. And, uh, um, and all of the duties that go, that go on with that. It was, it was somewhat nice just come in and uh, pinch hit uh, for various classes. But yeah, now to, to be a part of the faculty and, uh, um, and see what goes on not only in the classroom, but uh, in faculty meetings and, uh, and all the other activities. It, uh, um, it took a little while to get used to that idea, um, but uh, I think I've, I've uh, gotten used to it by now. Tell us then a little bit about your, your current research. Right now you're working on your uh, doctoral dissertation at UCSD, and uh, it has something to do with utopia. What, tell us. Yes. Uh, the, uh, the topic, as I proposed it, um, I kept purposely broad. And uh, what it'll mainly focus on is the, what we could maybe say, idyllic images in the prophets and, uh, and basically how we interpret them, how we're to understand them. Uh, and so thinking of a passage like Isaiah 11, the wolf lying down with the lamb, uh, what, uh, what do we have in the ancient Near East? What, do we have similar imagery elsewhere? Uh, what else, how does it compare with everything else, the other images we find uh, in the Old Testament? Um, and, uh, um, you know, some, some passages you clearly see hyperbole or you clearly see metaphor. Um, how, how do we uh, apply and, you know, how did the prophets use these, uh, um, 
these techniques as they were seeking to describe uh, future blessings. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the, uh, um, the direction it's, uh, uh, it's going to, to go. As you're doing your academic work, how do you relate that to the, to the students? Particularly, I'm interested in, in the way that it influences what you say and the way you say things and, uh, to our MDiv students. About 70% of our students are heading for pastoral ministry. And uh, here you are doing uh, interesting uh, academic work, but, but in the nature of research at that level, it's, it's somewhat narrow and focused. Uh, how do you relate that work and the, other, uh, and the other work that you've done? You've done some publishing in Old Testament studies to w- what you're doing in the classroom or what you're doing in the office when you're talking with students. Thankfully, this topic, I think, uh, as I've spoken to students with it, they at least find an interest in it yeah. uh, because it very much deals with uh, proper interpretation. Okay. And, uh, um, and part of what I stress in my Old Testament classes, and it's what I had here for, um, when I came from both New Testament and Old Testament professors, is, uh, is you do, you know, you need to read this text um, in light of, uh, of its context and, uh, and to not, you know, just let the English strike you however it is and run with that meaning. Yeah. Um, you have to do the hard work of, uh, of studying what else there is in the ancient Near East and, and, uh, and other, uh, um, you know, and, and, uh, and how they viewed the world and w- in what ways it's different from us. And, uh, and so I, I think, you know, this research, um, you know, helps me in my own training in that and, uh, and provides uh, great examples and, uh, and advice that I can give to the students to make them um, more uh, better students of uh, God's Word. What do you say to those who worry about the use of uh, extra-biblical history, context, and the like, uh, particularly ancient Near Eastern parallels and contexts for understanding the the Hebrew Scriptures and and more broadly the Old Testament. How, how do you handle that concern? A good way to start is to just acknowledge that the Old Testament is in Hebrew, mm. and we know Hebrew better because of the context, the the stuff we have found, um, especially Ugarit and uh, um, but uh, um, the Akkadian literature that we have. Uh, and so we wouldn't even understand the words themselves without ancient Near East context. Um, we've get, we've uh, vastly increased our knowledge of some some words that were just so obscure in the biblical text that we we couldn't quite uh, figure out um, you know what the the meaning was. But now with um, with the uh, ancient Near East um, evidence, we can uh, be much more certain. Hmm. Um, and so you know just with that as a foundation. You can come out of that to uh, to say, well, not only is the language similar to what we find elsewhere, um, you know, many of the cultural norms and ideas would also likewise be be similar. God spoke, and you know, and then you can get to a more theological point that mm. God spoke to them in uh, words that they would understand. Um, your your work. Um on Old Testament backgrounds, or, or at least the context of the texts that you're studying, isn't just uh, textual and or theoretical. You've actually gotten your hands dirty. 
Tell us a little bit about uh, about some of that work that you've done. It, uh, um, you're alluding to two summers ago uh, when I had the opportunity to go to Jordan and uh, spend five weeks digging in the hot, hot, hot desert. <laughs> Was it as hot there as it is cold in Montana and Alaska? Uh, definitely. Um, People ask me how much it, uh, um, you know, was was for my research for Utopia, <laughs> and I said, well, it was to get to know dystopia. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it uh, it was a very interesting experience. That I, um, we we were in the largest copper mining production area in the whole uh, Syro-Palestinian uh, coast area there, and it has um, settlements uh, back from the Neolithic all the way through. Byzantine and, uh, and and when was that? Uh, the Neolithic. Yeah. Um, oh, at least six thousand years ago or okay. or before. So um, the things you're looking at these these aren't from last week. R- right. At least a lot of it. We were more interested. Uh, thankfully, we weren't digging a Neolithic site. We were uh, digging at um, uh, an early Bronze site, which is still before the biblical period. Uh, but one of the surveys, a uh, regional survey we were doing, was dealing actually with uh, the Iron Age, which is Israelite history. Okay. So and, uh, this is providing background, uh, sort of pre, in a sense, pre-biblical history, uh, biblical history, uh, and you're learning uh, archaeological skills firsthand. Yeah. I would say, you know, it was interesting to um, to be involved in, in research that uh, deals with the Israelite time period, but probably the biggest thing I come away with is uh, more insight into archaeology, methodology, and uh, um, better understanding uh, in that uh, I can read archaeological material with uh, mm. you know, the eye, an initiate eye now. And so it, it, you, you can read perhaps a little bit between the lines and, exactly. and make you, sense of, of, of what's being described. You know where they're pushing their conclusions. Okay. Um, All right, that's helpful. Do you have expectations of going back and doing some more of that? I would love to. Um, my uh, sometime after my dissertation's done. Yeah, well, you, yeah, you've got some you've got some work to do. Well, this has been delightful, Josh. I'm thankful for your time, and that's it for this edition of Office Hours. We'll be back next month for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu and click on Westminster Audio. For more information about this podcast or about Westminster Seminary California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California, all rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce or distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do, and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.